This week, Martin Resch from Netography is with us to discuss atomized networks. Then, Edward Wu from ExtraHop joins us to talk about an MRI for the cloud. Finally, in the enterprise security news, funding in cyber is still healthy, though we don't have many funding announcements this week. Tetris raises 44 million euros to fight cyber threats. Vanta raises 40 million to automate compliance tasks. Another password manager enters the Thunderdome. Another attack simulation vendor, though in this category, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. Former NSO CEO and ex-Austrian chancellor found the dream. CISO perspectives and insights from Brazil. Get rich writing tweets for rich people. Questioning quadrant qualifications. And one of the crazier squirrel stories we've had in recent months. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the PingOne cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy chicken and waffles day. This is episode 293 recorded on Thursday, October 20th, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is Sean Metcalf. How are you, Sean? Doing great, Adrian. How are things with you? Uh, pretty good. I had to actually uh, uh, jump away from my script here because uh, uh, we, we've got some co-hosts that were delayed a bit today. But Sean was able to uh, to join us at the beginning here. And I, I'm really excited about this interview and uh, slightly less excited about Chicken and Waffles Day. I'm not a huge Chicken and Waffles fan. I, f- I feel like it's it's a bit much putting all that together. It is together. a bit much. It's, it's like lunch and dinner in one or breakfast and, and lunch and dinner in one meal. Yeah, it's I've had it and it was tasty. It's just not something I would eat all the time. It's super rich. That, no debate there. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a fried Oreo. Like objectively, yes, it tastes good, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's not going to be on the on the weekly menu. <laughs> yeah, then you fall under the the Dr. Ian Malcolm side of things. Like you know, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean yeah. you should. And, yeah, and it's not it's for a, everyone, you know. I like All ice right. cream, but I don't necessarily want to fry my ice cream. Exactly. And and with that Jurassic Park reference, we will jump into the, <laughs> the announcements. That's <laughs> hitting the high points early. 
Uh, don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms, which include YouTube and I was going to say Discord again. <laughs> Gus, help me out. I'm drawing a blank. Twitch. Oh, my goodness. Twitch. YouTube and Twitch. Thank you. So nice. You got to say it twice. Yeah. Gus with the save there. All right. Today's topic is, and and I, I took some uh, creative liberties uh, putting together this, this title. I, I hope you're okay with that, uh, Marty, but uh, calling it situational awareness in an age of dispersed assets and atomized networks. That's a mouthful. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, you know, I'm having fun with it. You know, so so it's interesting. Uh, well, let, let me finish uh, introducing you here. For folks who don't know, Martin Resch is the CEO at Netography. Uh, he's also well known for creating Snort, founding Sourcefire, and building uh, Cisco into a bit of a security company. And uh, is also an early pioneer of the open core business model, which I actually had to look up. But welcome, Martin. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. Appreciate uh, you uh, putting me on today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, it's pretty special. It's, um, you know, again, something I, I didn't realize that uh, came up just uh, on our Slack discussing uh, bringing you on the show. Somebody mentioned that you were the, I, I think, the second show that was recorded and released, but it wasn't given a number. So it was just called a, uh, uh, like it was a special, special edition of Paul Security mm. Weekly in between episodes one and two back in, in uh, 2005. Wow. Uh, yeah. Paul, Paul met up with you at SANS 2005 in LA and uh, there were sirens in the background and <laughs> it was uh, it wasn't the best quality recording, but it was a really good conversation. And, and, you know, some of what I gleaned from, uh, you know, giving that a listen now um, all, all these many years later, uh, you know, kind of inspired some of that title because that uh, uh, you talked a lot about situ uh, situ situational awareness fabric back then, yeah. Which I, which I th I think is a great uh, and I I, th I think that's one of your superpowers here is is coming up with uh, uh, good metaphors and and uh, and terms for understanding concepts. Yeah, I've noticed you've got a ton of them. Yeah, it's um, I, I found that it's really necessary in the security world. Uh, to have good metaphors to talk to people about it because, you know, security is like super esoteric and uh, you really have to know a lot of kind of backstory to really make sense of the things that you're hearing. So one of the things that I discovered as I was building Sourcefire back in the old days um, was that you needed to be able to talk to people who had no idea uh, what you were actually, you know, had no foundation uh, to right. even have an idea about what you were talking about. So good metaphors became like uh, a critical to uh, to be able to do it and also you know good metaphors uh, to some degree um you know the demonstration that you understand the material enough to be able to draw you know uh, analogies in the you know kind of the real world as opposed to this very cyber digital whatever world that we uh, we exist in today 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um, you know to put people in the right frame of mind. Uh, you know, one of the questions uh, was something about like your everyday carry, like like what did you have with you? And you know, one of the things was a sixty gigabyte uh, iPod video. <laughs> you know, to to help people kind of put this stuff in in context. I think there was a a Treo that you also carried with you. You know, yeah, Apple laptops iPhone. were yeah, Apple laptops were called power books uh, still back then. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Pre iPhone, like, uh, uh, it's fascinating. I, I really should go back and listen to it because it's like, it'd be interesting to see what I was talking about then because I bet you a lot of the themes are similar to what we talk about today because the problem hasn't really changed all that much. It's kind of the, uh, the venue or the, the architecture or the, you know, the, kind of the composition of the environment that you're trying to do it in has radically evolved. So, but, you know, the fundamental needs really don't change. Uh, over time, um, like you expect they might. Well, that, that's kind of what I intend to do today is sprinkle bits of what you were talking about back then in with today, because the, you, you're, you're spot on. You know, there, there are definitely some parallels between the two. Um, so, yeah, back then, uh, the, the current version of Snort was 2.4.3. Sourcefire was four years old. And you had, and, and this was the thing I, I had to look up here, but you had to, what was it again? The open core business model. So uh, totally familiar with that business model, but didn't realize it had that name. You know, it's basically mm-hmm. like, how do you create a business out of an open source product? Yeah, well, that was, um, it, I don't think it actually did have a name back then. <laughs> uh, was I calling it open core back then? Uh, no, no, that just came out of your bio. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... When I was contemplating getting Sourcefire started, you know, I, I kind of I, I had Snort, and Snort was everywhere, and it was being used like very, very widely. So, uh, you know, there was a part of me that was basically saying, if you don't figure out how to make money on this, somebody else will. So, you know, apply yourself. <laughs> so, I did, and um, you know, I came up with this business model that really contemplated, you know, what Snort was good at and what it was not good at. So, Snort. Um, in the small scale, it solves problems, but in the large scale, it causes problems. And the problems that it causes are different than the ones that it solves. So that was the insight that I had. Uh, and you know what I kind of became aware of as time marched on was that you know enterprises want your function, but they want it in a form factor. And the form factor is they want it to be manageable, scalable. They want it to perform, uh, provide automation, and be supported. So they want the snort function, but manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support have to surround it. And that's what Sourcefire really delivered. So, you know, this is back in late, late 2000 that I'm kind of cooking up this, this plan to go to the world of this business model. And, you know, like people didn't really believe in it back then. It's like, how do you sell something that's free? And it's like, well, I've got this value added model for it. And people are like, that's ridiculous. You know, the only reason that people <laughs> are using this stuff was because it's free, not because it's good. So, you know, Take your your silly idea and move on, young man. Uh, and um, you know, I just I kept plugging away at it. And once I had a product that was ready to go, I instantly had customers, which is uh, kind of the the crazy thing is that you know, you know we were selling to enterprise customers immediately, uh, like literally out of my house um, with uh, with Sourcefire. And um, yeah, this open core model. Eventually, somebody came up with a name for it. And uh, it's a it's a thing uh, that's uh, that's real now, and you see this model uh, repeated and perpetuated in uh, in a number of uh, different industries now. 
And it's it's interesting you saying that um, you know back then people were saying you know they're they're using it because it's free not because it's good uh, because I yeah I would contest that the the reality is is almost the opposite you know I'm I'm happy to pay five dollars a month or you know some small one time amount uh, you know for a piece of software you know that that I don't have to compile myself that I don't have to you know r- read all the documentation to to be able to use or work out dependency issues and and uh use uh um you know there's just a a, i've got a whole thread a whole rant on this uh probably my my most popular tweet ever was just ranting about how difficult it is to run most open source software out there um so you know in that world also like a lot of work goes into making sure your builds work you know, on uh, in different environments. You know, making sure people know how to use the product, making sure the the options and the the configuration, uh, y- you know, options that you have make make sense. You know, and you have good defaults and things like that. And, and you have yeah. to worry about vulnerabilities as well. Yeah. Oh, it was. You know, I uh, uh, very uh, I don't know famously wrote a, a file that's included in the Snort distro called Usage which is just a text file that describes, you know, three fundamental operational modes and how to get them going. And, um, you know, this is very conversational tone on, okay, you're new to Snort and you've never used it before. And it's a sniffer, it's a packet logger, it's an IDS. And here's how to enable both, you know, all three of those modes and kind of what to expect. And uh, people loved it. Uh, you know, it wasn't a huge document or anything like that. It was uh, maybe about two or three pages of uh, text and, um, and, that was like a, a huge deal. And, you know, to your point, having same defaults and th- stuff like that, uh, that was one of the things that I found was almost the most powerful part of being uh, the guy who wrote Snort was that I also controlled the snort.com file, which meant that I effectively controlled the default configuration for intrusion detection for 80% of the users who were using it, which is like, you know, probably 80% of the world that was doing intrusion detection. So like had this kind of (laughs) unbounded power to describe the default configuration for this huge chunk of the world that cared to do intrusion detection. And uh, like uh, I became aware that that was, uh, you know, a real responsibility as, uh, as time wore on. Um, But yeah, same defaults, uh, all those sorts of things. It's, It's funny what you start thinking about when you're building it, because eventually you come to realize, oh my God, all these people are using my, my spare time project here. I actually have to have a sense of responsibility about like, you know, keeping them from shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sounds like that led to understanding that you had lightning in a bottle here. You know, people were talking to you and, and saying, Hey, you know, you should do something with this, turn this into a company. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. you had to, uh, you know, get some, uh, some real, some customers and, and real revenue to get anybody to take you seriously is one of the things you were talking about on that, uh, you know, cause back then, like the idea of, oh yeah, you know, I'm taking this free product and, and, uh, going to build a company out of it, you know, what wasn't, uh, terribly well received by VCs back in the day. No, no, no. It, it, I got called, uh, uh, you know, dumb a few times um, <laughs> when I was trying to go to market with that concept. Um, but no, it was, uh, you know, knowing your audience is kind of half the battle. Um, mm-hmm. So I became, well, you, you know, so from supporting Snort uh, and supporting all of its users and things like that, you see the emails coming into the mailing list and then emails come to you personally and you see, you know, this bank is using it, this government agency is using it, this, uh, you know, this tech company mm-hmm. is using it. It's like, wow, okay. Um, so You were effectively you st- customer success for your, for the product. 
as well back oh, then. So you you, you had that feedback loop was was uh, a person of one in that feedback loop, right? Oh, and like you have no idea how um, well as a software developer how fulfilling that is to actually have direct interaction with the the users. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like manna from heaven because. You could actually talk with them very directly about what do you like, what do you not like, what's working, what's not working, how would you change it? Um, so this the the loop between um, you and the user didn't have to pass through product marketing and product management and go through requirements assessment and you know all the other stuff it was just like you know to some degree it was kind of fielder's choice what you felt like implementing, um, but to a large degree it was kind of you know you talk to twenty people and you start like writing down what they want and you figure out where the intersections are and it's like okay here's a here's a roadmap. Um, for implementing. And uh, so it was an incredibly powerful way to develop software. And, you know, I, I became very opinionated about the value of open source in terms of what it delivers to its users. Um, you, you know, all things being equal, a commercial project and an open source project, I always believed that the open source project would um, very rapidly coalesce on the feature set that people actually wanted, um, you know, much more rapidly than necessarily the the commercial software because the commercial software had to go through its iterations and had this right. these, you know areas of remove between the uh, developers and the the users uh, and also had to answer to you know the the whims of the management team and what the sales uh, team was seeing in the field uh, and things of that nature and it's not really whims it's you know kind of what they need to get their jobs done sure um, so I, I should be circumspect about that now that I'm a CEO <laughs> uh, back back then it was a little more shoot from the hip. Um, but yeah, it's an incredibly powerful way to develop software. And then, um, you know, want to, to market. And I, I really, I felt like I really fundamentally understood what people needed to make Snort kind of enterprise grade, all the things around it, the management infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was right. <laughs> but yeah, taking that story to uh, venture capital, um, you know, don't forget this is 2001. So the dot-com uh, crash was in progress when I was getting started. Right. Uh, showing with a story of I figured out how to get people to pay for stuff that's free. <laughs> story to uh, yeah. to venture capitalists was like, wow, that's interesting. Tell me when you make a single dollar now, get out. Uh, yeah. And you know, and that's how yeah. it was. And then I didn't make a single dollar. In fact, I made you know several hundred thousand single dollars uh, per deal um, selling off my back porch. And uh, all of a sudden, the venture capital community was like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Nice. Yeah, because e- even security was fairly new back then. So not only was the IDS new, not only was the security uh, industry new, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of, uh, you know, basing a, a for-profit company around an open source product was also new. So you had, you had all these challenges. Um, but, uh, but yeah, money's, you know, money talks, right? Money talks, sure does. Like, you know, if you're, if you're right, the market's going to let you know. Yeah, that's a great point, Adrian. I mean, from the perspective of having something that's brand new that the industry is not used to, there's no established market for that. Um, you know, Apple is built on other things. The iPod, when it came out, since we were talking about it, uh, wasn't new at the time. There were other portable media players at the time, but they figured out how to make it better. So it's just kind of advancing and improving upon that. So what was your what was your idea around? Okay, I have this new thing that I think is important. How to get that out there? Was your approach to open source it and then maybe later make it a product, or were you just like, "This is a need. I think we should do this. This is the right thing to do." Well, store came about because I was teaching myself how to do security. <laughs> so I, uh, I literally, you know, I got started in security in '96 and I was doing uh, stuff as a government contractor. 
And, um, you know, teaching myself was part of, well, you, there were no degree programs or anything like that. If you're going to learn security in, in college, you're going to learn about uh, cryptography. Um, and that was about it. So if you wanted to learn how to do you know, real-time network traffic analysis and intrusion detection or port scanning or making firewalls and things like that, um, the best way to do it was to write your own software. And I'm an engineer by uh, education, so I wrote my own software. So Snort started out as me exploring how to write intrusion detection systems and kind of uh, um, getting hooked into this kind of uh, this dopamine pump of every week or two doing a release of Snort and getting feedback. Oh, this is really good. Or, you know, change this, add that, uh, that sort of thing. So before there was social networking, I guess uh, Snort was my social network. Um, and, um, and eventually I came to understand that people were widely deploying Snort. Like you had these um, major companies that were deploying these huge Snort footprints and they were trying to manage them internally. There was no central management infrastructure for it. There was no mm -hmm. rules distribution uh, complex for it. Um, rules were uh, developed by the community itself. So there were all these different um, uh, rule sets that were out there. Um, we didn't have any relationships with the vendors. So like on Microsoft Tuesday, we just had to wait till it popped up and do all the analysis and reverse engineering to um, get uh, new detections out and stuff like that. So I recognized that there was probably going to be a, a pretty substantial market in the enterprise, especially um, for uh, companies that liked the Snort function, the capabilities that it brought to the table and how it did what it did. And in fact, an entire generation of users was trained that that's the right way to attack the problem. Um, and uh, and the other ways, the commercial ways, the black boxes that were out there that did the same sort of thing were the wrong way to do it. And so all I had to do was figure out, you know, what's missing, what are they willing to pay for? And, you know, selling to the enterprise uh, is uh, makes a lot of sense, right? I sell to people who have a lot of money and also have a big problem. Um, right. it, it was just, it was kind of a match made in heaven uh, in that regard. Um, and it was, you know, it just worked. It worked really, really well immediately. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I remember hanging a, uh, a box off my internet uh, service provider access, which of course, back then in the early 2000s, you had direct access to the internet, having Snort running on it to see what would happen, what was going on with that. Uh, the mm -hmm. fact that you could packet capture was pretty impressive. I also did a lot of government contracting at the time. And with the thing with the government is they didn't want to support open source. They they had rules around how you could use open source. And ultimately, they evolved into a rule where as long as there was someone they could pay for it, then they could leverage those products and really start supporting it because there was support behind it. Did you mm -hmm. think about that before it since you had done some government work? Or was that something that just kind of happened naturally uh, by making this this company to, to support and have the management aspects to the product? Um, it happened kind of naturally. I did hear that kind of uh, thing um, over time. Hey, you know, we like to use this, but we need it to be commercial for us to, uh, you know, we need to be able to pay for something for us to, to use it in our environment because that's kind of the rules uh, around here. Uh, I didn't specifically target uh, the government, but so much of the government was using Snort by the time we got started um, that we had very natural uptake immediately. And this was... Um, just before or right around the time period that uh, things like common criteria were uh, coming into effect. So um, SNORT itself was widely penetrated into the government. In fact, governments all over the world. Um, so when the product came along, there was, you know, there was a lot of demand for it right away, uh, which just, you know, which kind of started the flywheel of there's money there. So let's go do what we got to do to go get access to it. And these, you know, and these customers, they wanted it. 
uh, as well. We, you know, we're using Snort. We're going to deploy um, you guys because you're the Snort guys, and uh, that's what we use around here. Um, and we're willing to pay for it, and you know, at, at government rates and all that stuff. So we had a pretty good government business at Source. Right? I think it was about twenty to twenty-five percent of our business typically. Um, so it was, uh, it was, you know, they were a good customer. Um, provided great feedback. They're always very appreciative to both the open source and the commercial. So it was, uh, it was a nice relationship that we had. Uh, with the government uh, in the in the source fire days, but you saw it also at, at enterprises where they're like, we can't use your stuff until we can pay for it and t- get support. Like we have an open yeah. source policy that requires somebody to be out there for it. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to connect it with the present a little bit here. I want to talk a bit about visibility and going back and listening to that to that interview. You know, you're talking about what inspired you to create Snort, and, and you were trying to look at RPC payloads. And uh, you know the, the the packet captures were all in hex and, and didn't have like the ASCII column, you know, like like you, so you were sitting there transcribing hex to ASCII by hand, like on a on a piece of paper or something like that to to figure out what was in these payloads. And you know, fast forward to today, and I I, I think visibility still seems very much like a challenge. You you still see a lot of people, you know, like like maybe they're using a tool, uh, you know, to do that translation. Uh, but a lot of products today, you know, produce a, a lot of data, produce a lot of alerts, you know, they can do a lot of useful things, you know, but for it to really be considered visibility, you know, I, I feel like that's something um, we haven't really gotten that much closer to. Like we got a little bit closer to it, you know, but then we seem so focused on com- being completionist, you know, like. You know, ha- having a uh, an alert for everything. You know, like take the miter attack matrix. Like, like we're gonna have uh, a detection. We're gonna make a detection for everything and treat everything as equal. When you know, in the real world, maybe that maybe that's not the case. So, so it's um, interested in your opinion on. I mean, what, what what was driving Snort? Is that what's driving Natography today? That that. Um, everything's still very kind of chaotic and unorganized and and the need for visibility where you need it, when you need it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's similar, but different. Um, Visibility where you need it, when you need it is actually a big deal right now. So, you know, here's kind of our our viewpoint on it now. So the thing about Snort is Snort is like a scalpel, right? You, You put it at a point in the network and then you give it a configuration and the Snort rules are very simple. They tell you, you know, you tell Snore what to look for and it tells you when it sees it. That's its whole job. Um, but the things that it looked for are very discrete packet level um, detections of things like attacks or anomalies or, or things like that. What Snort doesn't have is like a very broad um, vantage point of um, the total network because, uh, because Snort can't... Um, record everything. You can put Snort into packet logger mode and it can, like every packet that passes through it, you can have obviously drop to the disk, but that's not a great thing to do. It's performance uh, intensive and it's also a, um, you know, it takes up a lot of disk space, obviously, especially on modern networks. Uh, So that's a problem. And so much of the traffic is encrypted now. Also, um, recording packets so you can look back at them later, like many of them, most of them are just going to be effectively line noise. Um, so that's that's a big uh, set of problems, and you know, natography is almost like 
in a lot of ways, the opposite of Snort. And in some ways, uh, there was another technology we developed at Sourcefire that I probably talked about in 2005 called RNA, or Real-Time Network Awareness uh, Technology, which was also yep. a deep packet inspection system. So the problem that we have with deep packet inspection today uh, on modern network architectures post-pandemic is that modern network architectures are dispersed. This is when we talk about these atomized networks, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? So what happened when the pandemic hit? Everybody got sent home and, you know, you used to do a project where I'm going to move the data center in Houston to the cloud. And, you know, we have a project manager and we have all the stakeholders get in a conference room and do weeklies and then they turn out readouts to the CIO. And then, you know, eventually uh, all the boxes are checked and everybody's happy and they move the thing to the, to the cloud. That was pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, everybody got sent home and it's like, just get your job done. So people did. They just stood up whatever they needed, wherever they needed it immediately. And today we're into what we call the atomized network, right? We have these multi-cloud, hybrid cloud with on-prem um, enterprise networks now. Well, try deploying a, a deep packet inspection technology in a relevant place in that world, right? So these networks are, I, I came up with a thing for it like literally two weeks ago. They're dispersed, ephemeral, encrypted, and diverse, right? So dispersed, they're, you know, in the cloud, they're on-prem, um, they could be, you know, just about anywhere. They could be uh, uh, an OT network someplace, they could be a space station, they could be a submarine, they could be a research base in Antarctica, for all we know. So you've got that issue of uh, locality, where are these things and when are they there? Uh, you've got the encryption prob problem, obviously. Um, Snort is radically different uh, depending on what it can do depending on where it is and if it's exposed to encryption or not. If it's exposed to encryption, it can't really tell you a whole lot. Of traffic has to be decrypted for it to uh, be able to do its thing. Um, and then you've got this, uh, you know, ephemeral things come and go. You need to be where where we need you when you, we need you there. That doesn't work very well for a, a you know, kind of a static defense like a, a DPI uh, technology. And then, um, you know, diverse, like IT, OT, cloud could be anything. So you got to be able to, to incorporate that everywhere you are. So I, I've, I've been noodling on this a lot, uh, especially over the last few months, um, talking about, you know, comparing and contrasting what we have built, which is a pure SaaS. We don't look at packets, we look at flows, but flows show up in real time. So we can still have a real time vantage point in the network. And to your point from your, uh, you know, your episode title at the beginning, um, we really are delivering a, a situational awareness platform that's truly a situational awareness platform because we can look at everything. Um, we use a, a real-time rules and model engine to be able to extract an event on things that are happening, but because we're dealing with network metadata and streaming it all off to disk, regardless of whether or not we detect something, uh, it's a radically smaller set of data, but if you need to do look back and threat hunting and stuff like that, or rerun a query set on this data that's been stored, you can do it. Um, so it really changes the game and gives you a much more operational real-time view into the network while also having this ability to do, you know, what we call retrospection uh, to be able to, to look back and, and, you know, dig stuff up when you need to. So it's it's actually, it's quite powerful and it's delivering similar capabilities that you get with a um, uh, intrusion detection engine or an NDR platform, but it's doing it in a very, very different way with an extremely different footprint. No software or hardware to deploy, which is radically different. And, um, you know, because of the way the thing's licensed is subscription instead of being licenses that are running on appliances to enable the management channels and integrate with a centralized management platform. It's not like that at all. It's like, oh, you've got capacity in your license. You need to stand up, um, you know, stand up visibility in Italy today. Well, you don't need to call us. You've got capacity in your license. So just like spin it up and you're up and running and that's it. You'd be up in, you know, minutes. 
Uh, Notography doesn't need to get involved at all. Uh, so if you need to shift, you know, to a different place to have visibility on your network, or just expand your visibility. Uh, if you got capacity in your license, right. you're good to go. If you don't have capacity in your license, we'll just true up with you later. You don't even have to call us for that. Right. Sean, real quick. Uh, I know Sean has a question, but uh, since you mentioned licensing like that, um, I don't know if I should uh, I should name names, but back when breach detection products were were kind of the the big hotness, you know the, these um, uh, appliances that would analyze malware, you know, kind of captured on the network and analyze it in real time, uh, you know, kind of the big eight hundred pound gorilla in the space at a time, licensed them by box, you know. So when we were buying one of these, which I, I actually recommended against, but that that's a different. Uh, uh, conversation. Um, we could only afford one box. So of course we put it in the headquarters, but all mm -hmm. our malware issues were all in the, the sales offices, you know, the manufacturing, all, all the smaller places where we couldn't put this one quarter million dollar box. And uh, lo and behold, competitors came into the business with a consumption based uh, license model where it was, it was by bandwidth. You know, so basically you would buy like a certain gigabits of, of bandwidth and you, you could just you could use, you know, off the off the rack, uh, you know, servers, install their software on it, you know, put it on a Intel NUC, you know, like w w whatever you need to to get the job done. Right. And just put right. it wherever you want. Don't have to contact anybody about licensing. And uh, and yeah, it took a couple of years for that 800 pound gorilla you know, who had just incredible churn uh, to fix their license model and uh, and capture some of that back. Yeah, letting people have autonomy is is a big deal, right? That, like, especially when you have an emergency, emergent situation going on, um, letting people kind of do what they need to do when they need to do it is important. And, you know, we never really talked about, um, and, and it was less of a big deal, you know, 15 plus years ago, uh, we never really talked about the issue of, you know, where you need it, when you need it very much back then. Um, you know, the last time I, I did this uh, uh, podcast, but, um, you know, that's always been kind of an issue. And, you know, we kind of papered it over. You can, you know, use uh, GigaMonster or whatever to, you know, get your pack of taps and get the traffic you need where you need it on the one hand. But on the other hand, uh, not always. And, uh, you know, especially when things kind of go off the rails, not not exactly where you need it when you need it a lot of times. So yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's very interesting um, because this is so different and the, the model is different from a consumption standpoint for this kind of network visibility. I, I don't think it's really existed like this before. So you mentioned the flow perspective of this, which I, I think makes sense, especially when you're looking at on-prem versus cloud versus wherever activity and actions are happening. And certainly with the current world being what it is, identity becomes the the next part of that. So how does uh, what your your approach, uh, how does that handle the different identities or even ensuring that the identity that's connecting to something and now connecting to something else across those flows is the same identity or same person person that's handling that identity or, or acting as that identity how do you how do you take that into account so uh we we treat identity and uh, a lot of kind of uh, metadata about the environment that we're in as context um we just added uh, a new feature set to the product uh, literally about a month ago that is essentially it's a context labeling uh, system within the platform now 
that allows you to load context in. So user identity information, system information, names of devices, security groups that they're in, all of those sorts of things, and then write policy around it. So analysis and uh, detection models uh, as policy, as well as you know response and things like that. So. Uh, if you have Active Directory or Okta or whatever, if we can get access via the APIs to the information, or if you can just bulk load it in the system, which in your case, you know, at the time of connection, bulk loading obviously doesn't work. You need to get it on the fly. Uh, all those things are possible with the, the addition of context labels, which means um, that you can essentially start writing policies that are attached to labels in our system. So you can say things like, you know, all these devices are covered under uh, HIPAA. And if they start doing behaviors that are, you know, not HIPAA compliant, then let us know. So, you know, simple stuff like that. Or, you know, this is Marty and he's an executive at the company and he's in the executive uh, security group. And, you know, here are the types of the classes of activity we never want to see uh, an executive uh, security group person to be doing. You know, it should never be streaming data to an ITAR country or something like that. Um, so all those things are, are doable. So what it really allows us to transition to doing is, uh, writing our uh, detection models, not just in terms of, well, you know, this is a DDoS and this is anomalous behavior uh, of, you know, this system is doing stuff that it doesn't usually do and things like that too. These are uh, PCI compliant devices and, you know, they don't talk outside the network. And these are, um, you know, executives and they have this set of constrained behaviors and, you know, these are whatever, these are desk phones and they talk to call centers. And if, <laughs> if they don't, then that's an issue too. Uh, so all those kind of classes of things become available, even down to the point of identifying, associating the context with an activity uh, down to a user. So if I'm following you accurately on this, then you could actually identify the difference in context of a person being on-prem in you know, their, their office, uh, authenticating through Active Directory, then jumping through Federation to connect to a cloud resource versus a user that's coming through VPN uh, and then getting authenticated by something like Okta or even connecting in from an AWS or Azure uh, instance, uh, being able to have context around those provides some insight into what potential activity should be ex expected and even approved to a certain uh, pr uh, approach, correct? Yeah, all those kinds of things are, are possible in this platform. And, you know, um, it, it's very... Powerful. I, I, I've been on the context, context bandwagon literally for 22 years. I started becoming a context believer in about the year 2000. We, we uh, put our money where our mouth was back at Sourcefire when we built RNA, which was a context generation platform. Um, and we have brought it to Netography basically and added this feature set in um, because once again, Context is kings. Like, you know, events, security events don't just happen. They happen to something or to someone. And you need to be able to deliver that information or consider that information before you alert, um, you know, operators so that you can have high value uh, detections and high value responses or, or uh, responses that are meaningful and impactful, not just responses that are kind of uh, random, right? Because in most security technologies that are doing detection, you have a very high number of false positives all the time. So if you can't contextualize them and say, I don't care about these because they're definitely false positives, you know, this event can affect this device or this user um, is doing, you know, is doing stuff that is approved. Um, if you can't do that sort of thing, then, you know, being able to take the next step and do automated responses is, is extremely difficult uh, because people get ticked off when you, you know, the CEO gets gets fired up when you shut off his email because, you know, some uh, some model, some machine learning model uh, got uh, tipped over and said, oh, this is a, a bad thing and now I'm going to stop it. 
Absolutely. And, and I think what we're seeing in better, better systems now is really the, the approach around when there's an alert, that's a meaningful alert. And there's an action that's supposed to be associated with that. And you mentioned false positives. Uh, are there ways through your system where you're able to tune out false positives or enable the customer to better tune to say, okay, well, this would normally be an issue, but in our environment, this is actually okay. And we kind of expect that given these specific contexts. Yeah, exactly. So um, we're working. So there's there's a few things in system already. So we have thresholding and stuff like that. So looking for things like uh, anomalous file transfers out of device. Um, well, if you have devices that are always you know generating the same kind of level of uh, um, behavior in terms of the amount of files that they transfer, the amount of volume that they're transferring off the device, you can use the threshold. We're we're working on mechanisms right now. Well, A, to expose them to you manually, so you can tweak them manually, but B, to be able to adjust them on the fly based on uh, our system kind of observing the behavior and then um, tweaking the, uh, the thresholds as they go. Um, so that's, you know, some of that is kind of machine learning. I'm not a huge machine learning uh, cheerleader uh, because I, I know what it can do and what it can't do. And I think this industry gets out over its skis, so to speak, and, uh, oh, yeah. um, uh, promoting its virtues and uh, ignoring its sins. Um, but uh, I, I think that... Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff like that uh, to allow you to squelch, to allow you to um, uh, do false positive rejection, either by leveraging context or by doing things like, you know, having exceptions in the system. Under these conditions, we're not going to fire this event. And we have a full language in the system that lets you describe uh, and do logic around basically any uh, individual element that we're capable of surfacing. And we have hundreds of things that we're capable of surfacing uh, in the system. So it's, a, it's, it's quite powerful. It's actually, uh, in a lot of ways, it has more um, capability for kind of being able to be shaped than, than a snort-like engine does. Uh, so it's interesting in that way. And it tells you stuff about your network that's basically almost impossible to find out any other way including intrusion detection systems that I built my career on. I mean, this this does different stuff, but it will tell you things that you will see no other way. So the two E's in, in your acronym DEED, uh, the ephemeral and encrypted, you know, so first the ephemeral, um, you know, one thing I, I used to ask uh, a, a lot of companies back uh, when I was an in industry analyst was, you know, because there are a lot of companies saying, yeah, we work fine in the cloud, you know, referring to the cloud as EC2 and maybe it's an agent based company and uh, saying, sure, you can install our agent there. You know, mm -hmm. but then my next question is like, OK, what, what if this is, um, you know, a company that's auto scaling resources up and down? How, how does your how's your dashboard look if I create and destroy 8000 instances uh, in, in AWS today? Like, does it, you know, like, does it know how to display that information? Like, you know, clearly different kinds of resources you have to treat a bit differently. Uh, otherwise, they just, uh, they kind of DOS the, the interfaces that the analysts use. And mm -hmm. then the question on the encrypted side is, is, you know, clearly that's another big change that we've seen since uh, 2005. Uh, yeah, I forget what percentage of websites were HTTPS back then, but it wasn't a huge percentage. You know, it certainly wasn't everything like today. And, you know, encry encryption in general has been, you know, so pervasive that, you know, a lot of products uh, like Notography kind of had to, you know, you got to, well, yeah, I'll, I'll let you tell me, but, you know, obviously you had to, you had to kind of shift product strategy there a bit or, uh, you know, your, your tactics and, and how you understand what's going on. 
or or, yeah. or, or you use T- TLS inspection, which I know a lot of people aren't aren't fans of. Yeah, well, TLS inspection is kind of you know it, it's a um, it's expensive, like it's computationally expensive, it's financially expensive, it requires curation, care, and feeding, and stuff like that, just like anything else, any other components. So. Uh, you've you've got all that kind of stuff. Well, I think part of you know part part of you know as they say part of getting as better as a mini you've got a problem right. So um, in the traffic analysis world, you know we've been bandaging the fact that encryption is becoming more and more per- pervasive for a long time. Just either ignoring it or oh well, deploy this fifty thousand dollar encryption pla- or decryption platform or you know we've got decryption capabilities baked into the hardware on our next gen firewall. And if you turn it on, you're going to pay an eighty percent performance penalty, but you'll be able to see. And it's like okay, um, we're kind of ripping the bandaid off and saying hey, you know what, everything's going to be encrypted. So let's get over um, trying to look inside the packets to see what's going on, which is one of the reasons that we want with Flow. So we're a metadata platform. We're looking at metadata about the network and we're looking at the metadata about the context of the network as well to to pull together the picture of what's going on instead of trying to look at every packet and put together every flow and things like that because um, because it's just it's not going to work like the 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 juice isn't going to be worth the squeeze um, five years from now. Five years ago there was a lot less of it than there is now. Five years from now there's going to be a lot more of it and the, the amount of money that you've got to pay to get the capabilities that are delivered for the amount of overhead that's required in terms of manpower and curation of the uh, technology and the detection rule set and uh, trying to deal with the data that comes out of them and then not having the surrounding data that you need when an event does go off to you know kind of follow the threat and stuff like that versus just saying hey you know what all traffic's going to be encrypted so we need to get into a system that doesn't care anymore and is fundamentally architected to uh to live in that world um you know we can live off the land there still um and if we stop trying to dig into the packets and start working on methods to be able to, to surface information from the data set, we can still get for free. We used to be able to get packets for free. We can't anymore, but we can get flows for free and we can get to, uh, context information about the environment for free. Then we should do that. And we should build the best platform we can that does that and give people the ability to comprehend their atomized networks as one entity, um, not just a, a collection of, you know, my Azure cloud cloud, my Amazon cloud, my on-prem stuff with different vendors and different tools and different languages and, you know, different teams that that run them. So you got that that whole issue. And I think that's like, hey, what if we just like rethought the problem and, and went after it that way, which is basically what we're doing here in Netography. And then you've got, you know, the ephemeral question that, uh, that you're talking about. So we're capable of loading real-time contacts like from VPCs as they fire up and loading them into the, uh, the back end. And we uh, anticipate and incorporate um, the ephemeral nature of all that into our displays and into how we we do things. So done instance IDs and things like that. So we can use that to associate like activities and things of that nature. So um, we, once again, we're, we're built for this world. We're built for the, the world we're in, the world that we're going to, not the one that existed 15 years ago and trying to perpetuate that model forward, which is where so many of the, the, the older solutions are. But at the same time, and this is important, this is one thing, I don't know that I would call it a pet peeve, but it's something that's really, um, I, I think it's interesting. You basically have two classes of vendors out there. You have the, the older school vendors who have on-prem infrastructure and they still have, they have cloud appliances and they have also cloud properties that they've bought. And then you have the pure cloud guys who only think about the cloud, don't think about on-premise at, at all. Well, 
this hybrid world, this atomized world is going to be the way it's going to be. So you have to actually incorporate all of it and look at it as one composite of all these pieces instead of on-prem, multi-cloud, blah, blah, blah. You have to look at it as one thing and have one language to talk about it. And that's one of the things, you know, I call it the Tower of Babel problem. You have to have one way to kind of, you know, give people a place to go and, and a language to use to uh, be able to work in that world. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a clean sheet approach in some ways. Yeah, it, it certainly helps that we can get flows from cloud providers now. You know, it wasn't always the case, but, um, you know, so at least, uh, yeah, Tower of Babel you need, but yeah, at least you don't need also a Rosetta Stone on top of that. You know, at least, uh, you know, you're still speaking flows everywhere where you're grabbing that data, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Flows are everywhere. All your enterprise network infrastructure supports it. All of your um, cloud providers support it. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that supported it as well. So uh, yeah, if you can talk flows or IP fix, um, we can uh, we can import the data into our platform. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, great conversation. Marty, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Enterprise Security Weekly today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you guys. All right, and stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk MRIs for the cloud with Edward Wu from ExtraHop. When it comes to cybersecurity, the biggest threats are the ones you never see coming. SecureWorks detects and responds to cyber attackers' ever-changing tactics. We come armed with Tagus, a security analytics platform designed to recognize attacks and stop them before they do harm. SecureWorks. Defending every corner of cyberspace. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash secureworks. The shift to remote and hybrid work over the past two years has accelerated application development on cloud infrastructure. However, securing these new assets has lagged behind. Qualys CloudView, the next generation of cloud security posture management, delivers an end-to-end multi-cloud security and compliance solution encompassing the entire application lifecycle from build to runtime. CloudView enables enterprises to assess their cloud security and compliance posture, identify risks and gaps, auto-remediate issues, proactively enforce best practices, and prove compliance in audits rapidly and efficiently. Identify your most vulnerable cloud assets by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right, so our second interview today uh, is sponsored by ExtraHop. Edward Wu joins us to talk about an MRI for the cloud, network data for cloud visibility detection and IR. Edward is a senior principal data scientist at ExtraHop, holds over 10 ML and cybersecurity patents, and is a contributor to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you, Grabby, here. Yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, definitely a uh, you know great topic. Um, you know, very very interesting topic. Uh, you know, we we were just talking about how it's um, you know visibility in the cloud has has been much improved since the different cloud vendors have added the ability to grab flows, uh, you know, to peer into network data. You know, I, th I think um, <laughs> there was this kind of awkward time in the cloud where to get that data, you kind of had to fool around with routing in your VPCs and and stand up like, like an EC2 proxy or something like that and funnel all your data 
through a, an actual appliance in the cloud, which was uh, not not ideal, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the last few years, the network as a data source has been more heavily adopted by the practitioners, which obviously prompted the big cloud service providers to improve their support for the acquisition of the network data in the cloud. Um, obviously, VPC flow logs and flow logs of various types is one example. But in addition to that, various cloud service providers also improved the ability to mirror full packets from different workloads as well. So before we dive in too deep uh, into some of the details there, uh, help, help me understand what you do at ExtraHop. As, as a senior principal data scientist, um, you, you know, it's, 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 uh, I, I can think of that going in a bunch of different directions, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm kind, kind of interested in, in what your role is there and, and, and what kind of stuff that you get to get to play with in your job. Because it sounds like it would be really mm -hmm. interesting stuff that you get to do. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I definitely have many different hats at ActualHub. Um, you can say my day job is leading our AI ML and detection products. So that involves building new machine learning models, uh, building detection capabilities and machine learning infrastructures that enable our cloud-based machine learning service to detect, um, as well as help our customers to investigate potential cyber attacks in their networks. Uh, but in addition to leading our AI ML and detection efforts, I'm also spearheading our product expansion to cloud workload security, um, because obviously cloud workload is a key part of the future of IT. And we as ActraHub do see a tremendous need and opportunity where um, right now the security teams are struggling to understand um, different aspects of the workload that's running in their cloud accounts. And we felt like our technology uh, could help. So just to clarify, because uh, in, in my head, I I might have an old school definition of cloud workload uh, security, but generally mm -hmm. workload to me, you know, sounds like a, you're installing an agent or somehow getting uh, telemetry from the from from a, a system where you control the operating system, but you know maybe that also extends to containers and and uh, more abstracted, uh, maybe even serverless stuff. So you know help help me understand what you what you mean when you say uh, cloud workload. Yeah, so by cloud workload, um, we are defining any code that executes in a customer's cloud accounts to to be cloud workload. And obviously that includes the traditional um, subset of cloud workloads that most people are familiar with, such as infrastructure as a service, uh, as well as uh, containers. But in addition to that, there are also other types of workloads in the cloud, such as platform as a service, serv serv um, so as well as serverless. And uh, actual hub, um, our focus is to utilize network data um, to provide comprehensive visibility as well as detection insights to all types of workloads in the cloud. Because as you mentioned, um, a lot of legacy cloud workload techno security technologies rely on the installation of agents. And obviously agents is one of the three foundational data sources for cybersecurity. Um, however, there are many practical challenges with the deployments as well as coverage of agents in the cloud. 
And that's where network data uh, could help. Gotcha. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> so I imagine, you know, you'd be collecting, um, it, we, we mentioned flow logs, but in, in addition to that, um, you know, perhaps uh, logs from the control plane itself, you know, so, so uh, CloudWatch, you know, stuff like that, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe other, uh, I guess, more function-specific cloud data. So not necessarily from the cloud, but from, you know, systems that live uh, you know, you said pretty much everything in, in, in any code that runs inside the the cloud instance. Yep. So I, I, that's a lot of different stuff. How do you how do you decide? Like, is is the goal to grab all of it and then sort things out, or is it more? Uh, you know, you mentioned you work with uh, customers on some of these problems. Is this something where you more add the different uh, sources of data as you need them to solve a problem? Yeah. So as a data scientist, you. <laughs> my natural intention or inclination is to grab all the data um, <laughs> yeah. first, but uh, obviously practically that that's not uh, very easy to do for a variety of reasons. Um, and right now our focus is starting with the data sources that we are most familiar with, as well as we are, are most differentiated at and can unlock uh, differentiated customer value. And that the as the starting point of that is flow logs as well as full packets. Um, and the reason being, um, obviously, there are many types of workloads in, in the cloud. And from our perspective, um, if, if you look at cloud workloads, there are actually two planes of behaviors. There is the what we consider as the CSP management plane. So those are the things such as like IAM roles, credentials. And then there's the traditional data plane where you can say packets fly across different devices. Um, there are a lot of existing site, uh, cloud security solutions that focus on management plane. There are a lot of tools out there that can detect public facing or S3 buckets. There are tools that can detect IAM privilege escalation, uh, stuff like that. But um, that's only part of the cloud workload security. Another part of the cloud workload security lies within the data plane, which is where kind of traditionally attackers and defenders have been fighting with each other um, in the on-prem data centers as well as corporate networks. Um, right now, attackers are um, utilizing a lot of cloud um, management plane techniques because the lack of tooling and the lack of uh, the relative immaturity um, in a lot of the deployments out there. But we do anticipate that over time, as people do a better job locking up public-facing S3 buckets, uh, as well as patch, uh, plugging some low-hanging fruits, such as uh, IMDS v1 and some of the IAM credential misuses and, and low-hanging exploits, um, we, we do anticipate the attacker to be dr driven back to the traditional data plane where attackers, in order to break into a system um, in, in the cloud, they still have to rely on traditional approaches, uh, s such as uh, obviously network remote code execution, exploits, brute forcing, um, as well as lateral movement and various pivoting techniques. And this as uh, the data plane of the cloud workloads is one um, that we at Actual Hub is focusing on right now. So your your coverage across these different areas, specifically infrastructure as a service, IaaS to uh, 
service as a service SaaS and platform as a service PaaS, certainly there's different data sources from a logging perspective and being able to incorporate those different elements into how you can capture and have some good visibility around those environments. What are some of the challenges that you find uh, in, in monitoring these systems and, and providing some good detail for your customer as far as how to track potentially malicious activity, especially when infrastructure as a service, you could potentially have an agent as well as some uh, log flow data, as well as some network data. Whereas with services as a service, you're just going to get log data, you know, event log data. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think we have a perfect answer right now, uh, but there are definitely a few key points we have observed after working with customers uh, to help them secure their cloud workloads as well as ourselves. Um, I would say the first point is security teams and development teams move or application teams move at a different pace. And for a long time, um, even for on-premise data centers, we have observed this kind of velocity gap where the application teams will deploy certain application, and then the security teams will catch up um, to, to those new applications and start to add in or bolt on additional security controls. Um, and actually, this phenomenon or this delay is exponentially worse or larger in the cloud uh, from our perspective, because cloud enables developers and application uh, owners to innovate and build at a much faster pace than they were able to uh, within the on-premise data centers. And because of that, um, one aspect we notice is very important uh, for the cloud workload security teams is the ability to monitor assets and secure assets with uh, in a very non-intrusive way so that they don't stop or impede the velocity of the developers. And because of that, a lot of times, some of the traditional cloud workload security uh, data sources such as agents and logs um, could could be a little bit tricky to deploy uh, because they involve some sort of consent as well as collaboration uh, from the developers or application owners. And in comparison, network as a data source, either it's the flow log level metadata or full packets, neither of those two types of network data sources require explicit consent or collaboration uh, from the application owners and the developers. And from our experience, the non-intrusiveness of the ability to provide visibility um, is really important for securing cloud workloads. Oh, good. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Follow-up question around that, though. When you're looking at these different types of sources, so say you're looking at event log uh, information from the SaaS component of the cloud, say Azure, because that's what I'm familiar with. Uh, so you're looking at Azure AD uh, event logs. How uh, do you go about correlating those, leveraging uh, ML or AI in, in your system in order to correlate that sort of activity with what's occurring in the IaaS platform? So Azure, for this example, as far as ensuring that what activity is occurring is expected or appropriate, or could it be potentially malicious? Like, What are some of the triggers that you're looking at around that? Yeah, that's a good question. So one thing I do want to preface by saying right now at this moment, we are not um, really looking at Azure AD data specifically. Um, right now, we are primarily focused on network data sources, which, as I said, are flow logs as well as uh, full packets. Um, and in terms of correlation between the two type of network data sources, uh, obviously, there are a, a few keys 
or identifiers that are fairly static, right? For example, um, see, every cloud resource generally has a unique instance ID. And obviously, a single instance could have different IP addresses assigned to them over time, or even different MAC addresses. But by correlating IP addresses, we observe front-end network data sources uh, with the instance metadata, such as the uh, globally unique instance IDs that give us a really strong indicator um, or identifier to correlate different behaviors. Um, and, and in addition to that, uh, I think you mentioned uh, obviously within Azure, there are certain services that you have, like the only way to get visibility is through log or event integration. Um, but from our experience for a lot of the other um, type of, you can say, workload or compute-based services. Um, for at least AWS specifically, um, and obviously Azure and GCP have their own variants of flow log capabilities, uh, but at least within AWS, one concrete example will be for Lambda functions, uh, which is a type of serverless offering in AWS, you can actually get flow logs from Lambda functions. Um, and that's also really powerful uh, and really allows security companies like us to uh, provide comprehensive visibility so that when we have a Lambda function that's talking to a um, like elastic load balancer that's talking to a web server running on EC2 instance, um, by we, we will have end-to-end -end visibility by joining the flow log um, behaviors uh, we monitor on the Lambda functions along with the full packets that we could mirror from the load balancers in the middle as well as the servers running uh, on the EC2 instance. That's really fascinating. I had no idea you could get flow log data from Lambda. So that's that's very interesting. I learned something new today, so I appreciate that. Um, so uh, relating to what you were talking about with with the IaaS and getting uh, the IaaS components and getting flow logs and network information, one of the challenges that I've seen customers have certainly is different capabilities across the different IaaS, or at least the primary IaaS platforms from AWS to Azure to GCP. Um, also with that are the different capabilities from a security perspective, but also just in general, what, what can be done with those different platforms and having different nomenclature across them. How are you um, with ExtraHop providing that visibility for customers and sort of for customers that are in all three, because certainly I've seen customers that are definitely in AWS and Azure, but also GCP. How are you helping customers provide that or, or provide that cohesive visibility across the multiple cloud platforms as well as the on-prem platforms so that they see the cohesive um, single pane of glass, so to speak, across mm -hmm. those so they have a good understanding of what's happening? Yes, that's a super interesting question. And I would say it's a continuous challenge, right? Like with the rise of the big cloud service providers and their interest in locking customers and differentiate, they kind of fragment the developer experience. Because nowadays as a developer for AWS, you get to use things that are quite different from a developer's uh, working on GCP or Azure has. And this kind of developer or fragmentation um, definitely make security companies as well as security teams jobs uh, quite difficult. Uh, for ActionHub, we have a two-pronged approach. The first approach is uh, relying on the fact that, 
hey, network packets is network packets, regardless if they are flying through AWS data centers or flying through Azure data centers. TCP is still TCP, HTTP is still HTTP, and DNS is still DNS. And thanks to this, um, essentially network data being the common denominator uh, across all three or all large cloud service providers, as well as on-premise data centers, uh, that give us a really solid foundation to build our analytics um, because we are relying mostly on network data, which is, you could argue, to some extent, um, very similar, if not exactly the same, across all environments. Uh, but on top of that, we do have to make a number of per CSV, sorry, per CSP product changes. For example, the type of metadata you can ingest from different CSPs is different. Um, in addition to that, different CSPs have specific um, background traffic, for example, that the tool or the product will need to be better at understanding um, and different CSPs obviously have different has subtle differences that either introduces new detection um, opportunities or introduce you can say potential new attack vectors or attack techniques that as a security product we need to pay more attention to great thank you very much for the answer Right. So, so talking about some of the use cases here, you know, I think we, we mentioned, um, IR, you know, we, we mentioned, um, uh, you know, a few different things there. Maybe we can dive into, uh, some of what, what customers are, are doing with the products, you know, where, where they're finding value in it. And, um, you know, what, most of all, like, like, what do you see in, in, in this product that really, turns the light bulb on for customers and, and makes them realize kind of kind of the value out of it, you know, that they weren't getting anywhere else. Yeah, so uh, from our experience, there are multiple value propositions of our product. Um, the most foundational one is probably the pure visibility of the uh, of seeing something that previously they had no visibility into. And one concrete example would be uh, kind of similar in, in kind of, you can say physical security. Um, when, when you turn on a light in the room, you start to see different pieces of furniture or so items on the floor um, in a room. Um, enabling, uh, turning on the visibility for cloud workloads oftentimes has a similar effect. Um, and one concrete example will be um, when we first were testing our product, we actually turn it on in our own data center. And we also actually noticed something that's quite interesting where we had a database service and we actually noticed a specific Lambda function that's querying this database service very periodically. And for a while, everybody was, was scratching their head a little bit and, and wondering like, why, why is that Lambda service hitting? Um, or that Lambda function hitting the database service. But after a while, after tracking down the owner and looking at the code a little bit, uh, we figured out, okay, it's a periodic database cleanup job uh, that our data engineers have built. Um, but as a security team, when you get this kind of visibility where you can see what's actually happening to the workloads, um, that provides a lot of opportunities. 
um, for both knowledge, um, because obviously you cannot secure something you don't know what it is supposed to do, uh, as well as other areas such as basic asset inventory, dependency mapping, uh, as well as posture management. Yeah, there's an allegory uh, a friend of mine loves to use where, you know, he says you you walk up on, you know, you're walking down the sidewalk and, and uh, you come upon somebody uh, searching for something on the ground uh, and uh, and they're searching under a streetlight. And uh, you say, did you did you lose something? And they say, yeah, yeah, I lost my keys. You say, did you lose your keys here? And they say, no, I lost them over there, but I can see what I'm doing here. You know, so <laughs> I'm searching over here. Yep. And I, I I think that's a good allegory for, you know, for what you're talking about here, where people will use the tools they have, you know, and, and oftentimes it's it's easy to forget uh, that, you know, there's stuff in the dark, you know, in those other places. Like, you know, I think Lambda's a, a great example there because it wouldn't even occur to me that you could get um, flow logs from Lambda. I, I, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even look for it. Like, like I, I would, I would have just naturally left those out. Yeah, yeah. H having flow logs enabled, um, or having Lambda functions generating flow logs is definitely a big plus to, I, I from my perspective, to the entire security community because Lambda functions are a little bit obviously more difficult to secure. Like you cannot install agents mm -hmm. on Lambda functions, um, and, and Lambda functions. Because they are so lightweight, you can say most or a lot of times they are not very high up on the asset inventory list versus like EC2 instances or databases. Right. But Lambda function can execute a lot of code. There are have been attack tools out there that actually um, allow attackers to create backdoors using Lambda functions. Um, and those of the techniques uh, are obviously that definitely makes security teams uh, life quite difficult. Um, but but yeah, ha having network visibility to serverless um, workloads is super powerful and it also makes sense, right? Because to some extent, at the end of the day, the purpose of a workload is to create some value or execute some automation. Um, and because everything is so interconnected, um, it makes sense for the workloads to continue to obviously communicate through the network with, with other workloads. And even when one cannot install agents on those workloads, um, as I mentioned earlier, network data continue to be like a very large, or you can argue to some extent, the biggest common denominator across all type of workloads. Yeah, I, I imagine one of the you know, some of the big value of a product like this, um, you know, and it, it kind of goes along with how I used to train uh, uh, incident handlers is that if you don't have a good baseline for what's going on in your network, you know, there, there's a lot of, and even talking about kind of the, how people use Lambda, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff going on that might look malicious, but it's just your company does something in a weird way, um, you know, or, or a non-standard way. You know, even in commercial software, you know, I often see, uh, you know, companies doing things a certain way because it works, you know, but it looks really sketchy. It, it looks like something only an attacker would do. Um, so I imagine, is that one of the use cases? Is that, do your customers spend a lot of time just going through 
and is that an option where, where they can kind of use the product to understand their environment better, you know, and to get kind of a baseline on, you know, say, for example, I'm investigating an EC2 instance, like I, I need to know what it normally talks to, right? Like I, I need to understand what that baseline is. Like, is the thing I'm seeing normal for this box or is, is this an anomaly? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So there are diff a few different ways to use a product and leverage our visibility. Obviously, the easiest way to get started is probably to just manually use a product and because um, we have really great visualization on different behaviors of different assets or uh, workloads within the account. So one could definitely pivot to that. Uh, one could actually also plot and activity map or a application dependency map showcasing okay for a given ec2 instance like who else is this ec2 instance talking to and sometimes to be frank looking at the dependency or activity map of an ec2 instance uh, provides more operational context than looking at the labels that developers or tags that developers have added uh, because a lot of times developers don't do the best job in the world describing uh, or even naming the different workloads or EC2 instances, uh, but the behaviors don't lie. Um, so by looking at the behavior of specific workloads, uh, the security teams can quickly identify um, the intended use of that workload and make, you can say, intelligent decisions on whether the observed behavior on the network of a given workload matches intended use of that workload. So that's one aspect. Uh, another way to use our product, obviously, as a data scientist, we we didn't um, let, let go the opportunity to build machine learning models in this case as well. So our product actually has many built-in machine learning models that also kind of performs this kind of analytics uh, for our customers. So one example would be, let's say there is a elastic load balancer, and then there are a bunch of web servers behind the single elastic load balancer. And if we start to see maybe one of the web server starting to communicate outbound, for example, establishing an outbound um, LDAP connection, um, our machine learning <laughs> model will actually catch that S automatically subtle, as well. Subtle log for shell reference there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, we, Sorry, we, we also have machine learning models um, as well to, to perform this type of analysis. Yeah, so sorry, interrupted there. You're you're right at the end, but you know, I, I I noticed that was probably a log for J, log for shell reference. Um, do you have any anecdotes or examples? You, you know, of this uh, obviously anonymous, um, or you know, I don't know if you have any that uh, um, have been cleared uh, to talk about publicly, but you know, any any examples of stuff that uh, you know customers have used the product to to intercept or find. You know, like maybe in a attack in progress or something like that, that that you can share. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to share any of those war st stories right now. Um, but I, but I will share one thing, which is um, actually pretty interesting because um, when we were um, testing our product capabilities. Obviously, we deploy a lot of these. Uh, we we deploy like the beta version or alpha version of our product internally, 
And we, we, we definitely, during the process, we didn't obviously detect any attacks or real attacks within our own data centers, but we definitely detected or saw a few, you can say kind of unexpected behaviors um, in, in the sense that, like I said, because developers and application owners move so quickly, a lot of times somebody just toss up a random EC2 instance and have it do something and then forget about it. So over time, like the team start to forget, okay, we actually had that EC2 instance over there doing something super important. Um, and when we actually deploy our product internally and use it, we, we, we kind of our application teams and security teams actually use our product to identify, you can say a few previously unknown or maybe forgotten quirks, um, quirks about um, uh, our own workloads, uh, which I think is pretty cool because like I said, a lot of times um, it, it is very important to um, understand the workloads when, when you try to secure them. Because ultimately um, you can say, obviously different people have different definition of secure, but one could argue uh, one definition of secure will be the workloads behaving with malicious intent, um, new behaviors that are not expected uh, for the original use of that workload. And in order to detect some of these, the security teams as well as application teams really need to have a good understanding of what are all the workloads in the environment, what exactly are they doing, and what each workload, uh, what behaviors each workload are expected to be observed. And our product provides a great validation uh, and sometimes offer opportunities of discovery as well to identify, you can say, unknown artifacts or previously unknown behaviors but that are actually benign, but, but somebody forgot about. And to some extent, we, we saw a lot of these cases for our on-premise customers as well. Uh, when they turn on our product, a lot of times they discover, oh, I didn't know I have a database over there that five of my most important application servers are still talking to. I was, we were actually about to turn off that rack because we saw nobody is talking to it and stuff like that. So, so this kind of general workload visibility um, it, it is tremendously valuable. Yeah, I think if you told somebody 40 years ago that computers would be so cheap and easy to deploy that you forget about them, you know, like like they're. <laughs> Like their socks, <laughs> you know. Like yep. I need more sock. I, you know, I'm missing. I'm missing sock pairs here. Um, it's it's yeah, it, exactly. it's funny. But yeah, it happens all the time. You know, maybe you do uh, proof of concept. You know, maybe the uh, you know the the PR team you know stands up uh, you know temporary infrastructure or WordPress for a uh, for a six month campaign and forget to shut it down at the end of the campaign. You know, it's almost like when we deploy resources in the cloud, we should deploy them with expiration dates, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the SOC analogy is fantastic because that's exactly what happens to, uh, uh, to a lot of accounts or cloud accounts. Uh, obviously, most large customers have multiple cloud accounts. Uh, some of them are for production service. Some of them are for more ephemeral and ad hoc stuff. But over time, we definitely see this proliferation of people creating, you can say, one-time or ad hoc or ephemeral workloads, and then forgot about them. And, and also, the, the sad reality is most people don't spend enough time thinking about like security policies and access controls for a lot of these ad hoc 
uh, workloads. Um, so when you leave them out there for expanded period of time, and those workloads are just floating kind of <laughs> in, in, in the kind of the void between the different spotlights, they, they do cause um, uh, additional security risks. And one like very common mistake is obviously when somebody spins something up, it's very easy if that asset they just spun up is accessible from public internet and has ability to reach out to any uh, destination on the public internet, right? It's a hu human, you can say nature that we want to make things easy for ourselves, but that kind mm -hmm. of security policy where it's accepting traffic from public internet and has no egress um, restrictions at all is very dangerous and imposes a lot of risk, not only to that specific asset, but also to any other asset that asset is reachable to. Yeah, I, I know really smart security people who've, who've, you know, said, yeah, I know this isn't this isn't the proper way to do it, but I, I'm going to turn it off at the end of the week anyway. <laughs> and it doesn't get turned yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're good at fooling ourselves that way. But um, no, I, I, I think that's a good topic or, or a good point to uh, to kind of wrap things up on is just the. Um, you know, again, it comes comes back to that visibility, that situ situational awareness of what's actually running in in your environment. You know, and uh, you know, ha having good knowledge of that, and um, you know, may maybe putting some expiration dates on things. <laughs> I, I really want to see that as an AWS feature. You know, I'm sure you you could do it as a tag, maybe. You know, put an expiration yep. date on something. Yeah. I think that, that would but be But it's tricky because cool people will keep renewing it, right? Yeah. Uh, every no, six months right. you get an email like, do you really want this? And you're like, hey, I already yeah. forgot what that asset is. So I'm, say, I'm going to reply, <laughs> yes, I really want this. Uh, I, right. I personally know I'm liable to some of those behaviors as well. Yeah, because they'll, they'll get 40 of them at once because they'll set them all up at once and they won't have time to look through each one of the 40. So they'll just like, yep. yeah, continue, continue, continue. Yes. You're right. Yes. Ah, oh, well, <laughs> Edward, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop to learn more about spending more quality time with your cloud workloads and understanding them better. We'll be right back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with ExtraHop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how ExtraHop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's extra H-O-P. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. 
Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. And my, my guest suggestion inbox is empty. So feel free to fill it up. I've cleared out all my guest suggestions. All right. Now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW293 if you want to check out the stories that we're going to be talking about today. All right. So the first one here uh, is Banco Santander and Forgepoint Capital have teamed up. Uh, I assume they raised a fund here. What was the amount? Altogether up to 300 million euro. Yeah, so it sounds like they've they've worked with ForgePoint quite a bit. So, yeah, I mean, the main reason I put this in here is is clearly funding for cybersecurity hasn't been materially impacted, I don't think. I think I've, I've heard from a, a few folks that, you know, there, there might be a bit more reticence in, in uh, you know, they, they might not be as loose with their uh, willingness to fund certain companies. Maybe they're doing more due diligence, but uh, certainly the, the money's still out there. So <clears throat> good to hear. And it's, it's interesting. Um, I guess it's just, oh, this is Santander who put together the press release. I find it interesting that they, they're using euros here. I guess, uh, I guess their headquarters headquarters is in Spain. So that makes sense. I guess they have a lot of headquarters, different places, but I think that's their main one. Well, with the recent currency model, I, I mean, pretty much it's one to one to one dollar euro. Yeah. So yeah. And pound as well. Right. Which is crazy. Well, if it stays there, it's going to be a lot more convenient to travel. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember you know, when I was a kid, it was like 1.5. Uh, um, yeah. Well, yeah Irish pounds, but Euro uh, to a dollar. And then the, uh, the British pound sterling was basically two to a dollar. Um, so yeah, I was, I was over in Ireland recently and it was basically one-to-one. It was very easy to convert stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, uh, Brazil a couple of weeks ago and, uh, it's, uh, five reais to, to one us dollar. So mm. uh, again, you just divide everything down there by five. Very, very easy to do the, uh, the math in your head. Um, and speaking of euros, French based Tetris. <laughs> Love the name. It's it's kind of a weird spelling, but I imagine it is probably said Tetris, probably pronounced Tetris. That can't be a mistake. Um, no, let's go with Tetris. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a a French XDR platform uh, named Tetris, and this is uh, I imagine this has got to be like a Series B, but I don't I don't think they have those details here. No, it's a series. Uh, yeah, this is a. This must be a series B. Their series A was twenty million euros in twenty twenty, and over two hundred sixty people. You know, so probably the biggest XDR uh, vendor that I have never heard of. <laughs> right. 
And we actually looked at funding, I want to say, maybe at the beginning of the year. You know, we, we started to notice that we were seeing a lot of funding from outside the U.S. And I, I wonder if that's a, a trend. And, and it's, it's one of those things where I, I can't tell if I'm just looking more closely now or if it's a legitimate trend that we're seeing a lot more startups in Switzerland, uh, in general, in, in Europe. Uh, the, the number of Israeli startups seem to have increased like two or threefold o- over previous years. Yeah, yeah, I was so going to say I, the, the startups in, out of Israel were just tremendous and huge for, for quite a while mm-hmm. there. So I might have to hunt down some actual data for that because I, I don't know if it's just my, my personal bias, you know, just since I started doing the podcast, you know, I, I started, you know, studying these things a lot more closely. But uh, certainly we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of startups, um, you know, with, with significant funding out of other countries. India also, we, we kind of regularly see a lot of stuff out of India as well. Right. Um, Vanta, which is a, has some very clever marketing. Um, <laughs> they, uh, at RSA, they had something like, uh, um, your sock doesn't have to suck or, or um, I, I forget how it's worded now. But uh, very clever, you know, because it's all about, they're all about automating uh, compliance, the, the evidence gathering that you, that you need to do for a sock. Um, <clears throat> so they, um, and, and it's not just sock too, you know, there, there's a bunch of companies that, that do this kind of stuff. And, you know, just in general, compliance stuff that's usually very spreadsheet heavy, very um, um, <clears throat> labor intensive, very manual labor intensive. Here it is. Compliance that doesn't sock too much. That, that, that was the, <laughs> I'll, I'll paste that good. in the discord. Yeah. I'll drop that in the discord and in the Slack so everybody can see it. <clears throat> But uh, yeah, they raised another forty million, and uh, as Tyler Shields was saying last week, we're seeing a lot of this uh, where if somebody can't raise uh, a new round, they're doing extensions. You know, and this is yet another. Uh, I think this is the third uh, extension that we've seen to an existing round. So this is a forty million extension of its Series B. Uh, Fundamentally, what's what's the difference between? Is it just you know a horse of a different color, or is there no, something I, actually fundamentally different about raising another round and calling it an extension versus another round? Because you know so, at the heart of it, money's money that you owe. So Tyler, Tyler would have the the real like definitive answer here, but I'll take a stab. Uh, I, I think one of the things is. Um, it's bad messaging to to have a down round. You don't want uh, a series C that's smaller than your series B, you know, that, that uh, could affect uh, confidence in, in the company and its performance and its ability to, to raise funds. So, you know, the optics are better adding to an existing round than doing a new round that's smaller. And I imagine it's a whole lot less hassle and paperwork to add to an existing round than to start an entirely new round. You know, sure, because have, you have the investors, you have the relationship, mm-hmm. you have the history. Yeah, yeah, you're you're adding to a term sheet instead of you know starting from scratch. I imagine with with the, with the new round, 
but uh, you know, again, um, investors might be screaming at me <laughs> that, that I got that all wrong. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use what I've learned from Tyler and and Will Lynn and you know uh, other smart investors who understand this kind of stuff. That's okay if they're screaming at you. They can they can reach out. It would be good to have our listeners really understand yeah. that. Do you have any guest suggestions that can suggest my my bad take or can help help me with my bad takes? Drop them in our guest suggestion form. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So Vanta, and we don't have a ton in ton of stories for for news today, but that's that's fine for me. You know, we uh, we've had some really big uh, um, weeks for news. Yeah, I think it's natural to see that kind of ebb and flow. So I'm sort of interested in this IronVest biometric authentication, decentralized biometric password manager. Uh Sure. Yeah. Go for it. So, you know, this isn't, it's interesting messaging. I don't know much about the company beyond the, the press release here and the website, but in terms of, you know, password managers, password vaults, we know that they're substantively better, right? They are predicated still on passwords. We know that biometrics do help. There are problems with them as well. But passwordless biometric authentication, what what makes this better? What makes it what makes it different? Um I guess it's the decentralization, right? It's the quote micro segmentation of of passwords similar to you know some of the other areas that, that you know network focused versus identity focused so it's an interesting concept but you really don't hear much about decentralized password management because by default a password manager is centralized passwordless or just centralized password management yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing a whole lot here that looks uh, that differentiates it from your one password. You know, your last pass. Uh, some of the others there, except uh, they're also doing um, uh, throwaway credit cards. So, like, uh, is it privacy.com? I think it's it's privacy.com mm-hmm. where they they create virtual credit card numbers for you, and you can basically treat it like a gift card. You can put like, okay, you know, this credit card number only has access to a hundred dollars, you know? So once it hits a hundred dollars that it's cut off. Uh, so it sounds like they're doing something like that, except they call them masked credit cards. Um, but then, uh, you know, everything else sounds okay. They're also doing masked email addresses. So I guess throwaway credit cards, throwaway email addresses, you know, so they're kind of combining two different types of apps here. Like I've seen privacy apps that just do like the throwaway stuff, you know, to allow you to um, anonymize, you know, your data that you use online, you know, to avoid being tracked and things like that. So they also have a virtual phone number um, and then combining that with a, a password database. But one other thing right. they mention they- here. They call it multi-party computing. You know, it's a decentralization method, I Uh, guess, similar to the idea of micro-sharding a little bit. None of that makes sense to me. (laughs) 
I mean, it's throwaway email addresses and credit cards and a virtual phone number that doesn't isn't tied to you. Like like all that. Those are neat privacy products that are all kind of rolled into one. But um, I I don't know what you mean when you say micro sharding, though. So when I was working uh, as an analyst, we, we had a couple of companies that did micro sharding. And the way it was explained to me was they would take your data and they would scatter pieces of it. Instead of communicating the data encrypted, they would scatter the pieces of data and encrypt the pieces of data so that if somebody caught the data in transmission okay. and somehow decrypted it, they, they couldn't get to all of it. It was like different pieces of a puzzle. It was sort of like Mike TV on um, on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know how he goes through the TV and he's all scattered about and can't put them back together? Sure, sure. Like like M of N key control is like that, where you know you need uh, at least three out of seven people to be able to uh, reassemble a key. So they, I, I, I am familiar with that. that. That's something you sometimes see in old enterprise controls. Right. So it right. seems like maybe they're doing something somewhat similar with their concept of multi-party computing, um, not storing the data for your authentication in one place, but in multiple places. Oh, you know, really? Taking out maybe that single point of failure. Maybe maybe that's the concept here. I didn't I didn't see anything about that. I mean, yeah, it's it, ironvest.com forward slash security. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at security. Multi-party computing. Okay. Um yeah, I mean, the other thing I was looking at is it looks like they provide some kind of overlay. You know, I, I don't know if they're actually handling the authentication, but they're talking about adding biometrics to third-party websites that you use. And the only way I can imagine you do that is by becoming also an identity provider, you know, using something like, like SAML to redirect authentication to theirs. So, yeah, authentication beyond sign-in. It's uh, it's just an interesting topic to me because I might have to try it out. They yeah. have a free, yeah. Well, I think I have to go a little bit above the free plan to to play with some of these. But yeah, I don't I don't want to spend too long <laughs> with pe people listening while while we while we scan the website. But um, you know, we'll we'll talk about it again after we've had some time to play with it. Yeah, I, I it's try an interesting interesting concept. I think. Yeah, I mean, especially it's it's also interesting that um, you know they seem to be selling to both uh, both B two C and B two B, and we're seeing that more and more now. We're seeing like consumer products that are actually built and designed for consumers, but sold to businesses with the idea that businesses will or, or can use these as like a like an employment perk, like. Um, you know, offering uh, identity protection or something like that to all your employees is just, uh, you know, a perk like uh, gym membership reimbursement or something like that. <clears throat> so that's a that's a neat idea. Well, uh, I think I made a mention it a couple of weeks ago. It's the idea, you know, the the iPhone originally started as a consumer product and then you started having people use it in their personal lives saying, wait a minute, my work phone isn't nearly this good. And you know, employees were rallying for it, but as soon as executives got their hands on it and said, well, I'm just going to use this at, at my business, 
IT make it work. So that's how a lot of this started. So, you know, backing into the enterprise, getting people familiar with it, especially if if it's a person who's sort of a forward technology adopter. Hey, I've used this in my personal life. We don't have anything as good as this in my work environment. Bringing it in that way, it's a smart idea. Well, you know, especially since, um, you know, I I think a lot of our experience with, um, you know, security awareness training and things like that at this point, you know, we've clearly learned that it's it's unlikely somebody's going to be, you know, have bad habits at home, you know, with their computing and their privacy and and, uh, security habits, you know, but then be amazing at work, right? You know, so this idea that you can somehow separate people's uh, personal digital life and, and habits and all that and, and security with their work life. Like we've seen so many um, breaches that have occurred, you know, because somebody um, reused a password one place, you know, at, at a non-workplace that got compromised and then also reused that password at work. And, you know, clearly there are points where the, the two worlds collide in a in a meaningful way. And, <clears throat> I think it's interesting, uh, you know, on on the market side to try and combine that to sell a consumer product that's also, you know, business can buy for their employees. Well, if you think about it, you know, the the whole it started with the you know completely remote work at the beginning of 2020. People's work lives are at home now, so they're a lot more likely to take it a lot more seriously when they know, hey, this is my stuff. You know, your personal stuff is is usually more near and dear to your heart. It doesn't matter what your work's telling you. Your personal stuff is still your personal stuff for most people. And, um, you know, the fact that people are working at home a lot more, that quite literally hits, hits closer to home. And so they're potentially people are more conscientious about it because they want to protect their personal stuff. They want to protect their kids more and more of this data is coming into their homes. And so, you know, it it was a very, very, very unfortunate thing that happened at the beginning of 2020 and and still lingering a little bit. But in terms of security awareness and good business practices and hygiene and all of that, I I think it's made a, a positive impact for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely uh, not something we can ignore at this point. Um, <clears throat> Sean, you've been quiet. Any anything? Uh, any news stories here that uh, caught your caught your attention? Yeah, certainly the cyber M and A uh, expected to remain robust in twenty twenty three is pretty interesting. I, I think that this has been one of the challenges that we've seen uh, companies acquiring a, other companies and really being able to do their due diligence and understand. What is the cybersecurity posture or the, the the security posture of of the systems of that company that they're acquiring? Uh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's plenty of companies out there that grow through acquisitions or have identified that this is a niche they want to grow into or acquire a competitor, uh, and they want to make sure that the security of the systems that they are acquiring uh, that they connect into their environment are going to be appropriate. Um, I that this makes a lot of sense to me. Even even given the economic conditions, uh, the security of the systems and uh, when you connect interconnect these, and we see a lot of that with our customers, 
uh, it remains it remains important. It continues to be even more important because the last thing a company wants to do is uh, incorporate a new company and their their technology systems, uh, which tend to be the same things, Active Directory, et cetera, and then interconnect them. And all of a sudden, attackers have a way in through this other uh, company, this this new acquisition. Uh, so I, I I see that as as being yeah very strong. That there's there's definitely going to continue to be a need there. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I saw somebody tweeting about it as if like this would be like a single event, like oh, cybersecurity is going to consolidate, as if it's not <laughs> something that's been constantly happening, you know, over the the past thirty years. And um, yeah, how do you get new security companies? You acquire companies, you know, mm -hmm. once they're uh, you know, if, if if they have to stay on for an extra year or two, you know, they'll they'll stay on and then uh, you know, they'll they'll take their equity and go start a new company. You know, so it's just uh something that happens constantly. And uh, you know, acquisitions are often rough rough on customers. So I don't know. I don't know. It's um, you know, again, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but um I'm I'm pretty sure the cybersecurity market, just the raw numbers of vendors in the market is is steadily growing. Uh not uh you know, I, I don't see it shrinking or consolidating down anytime soon. No, I think it's gonna be pretty robust across the board. Um companies acquiring other companies and certainly uh building out their portfolio. I mean, we're we're in an industry of checkboxes, like it or not. And a lot of a lot of customers are comparing the checkboxes of this customer or this company and what their product is with another one and making sure that they have what they need. I think that's why XDR is the new buzzword, right? Someone goes, Hey, yeah. we have an XDR because it does this. And now all the others are like, Okay, well, you have an EDR, but do you have an XDR? And then people are scratching their heads about what that actually means and what capabilities really define an XDR, right? Yeah, this is something I studied. This effect is something I studied a lot when I was at 451 Research. And uh, actually, I did some talks about it where specifically I was following Endpoint. And Endpoint has some very clear um, market trends that you can follow where you know, Endpoint has endpoint security has had two large consolidation events, you know, and I mapped everything out, all the companies where like in 2004, 2005, we had like 40, 50 cybersecurity vendors, and then it went down to like 20 or 30, you know, by, by 2009. And already at that point, you know, when, when it was shrinking down, it was already growing again, you know, because uh, AV was getting beat up. Uh, you know, was not doing a good job uh, protecting against uh, attacks. That that was the age of uh, go to the wrong website and suddenly you're compromised. You know, just <laughs> all you have to do is right. visit the website in, in this, uh, uh, what would they call them, uh, kits, um, you know, where they were creating custom unique malware on the server side and delivering that uh, in real time. Uh, like they would even determine your platform. Like, do we need to send... Uh, you know, the, the Windows 10 version or the Windows 7 version or the Windows XP version. Uh, and it was all parameter calls. And then the, the um, I can't think of the term. Uh, and then the, the kit would generate that malware on the fly and deliver it just to you. It was special made just for you. And so then we saw Next Gen AV and Sentinel-1 and Silence and uh, uh, CrowdStrike all popped up and I followed that and it's all consolidated back down again, 
you know, there, there's probably still well over a hundred endpoint security vendors out there, uh, but it actually has consolidated quite a bit. And yeah. that first round, remember, uh, if you wanted a firewall on your Windows or Mac or, well, Windows or Mac, you had to buy it. They actually sold it separately. That was a separate right. product you could spend money on. It was just a firewall. Like and then Black all ice. of a sudden it was, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, well, Black Ice was more than just a firewall, though. It was an sure. IPS as well, a host IPS. But um, all that got consolidated. Uh, if you wanted to encrypt your hard drive, that was a product you had to buy separately. Right. You know, and then that got built into the OS. Uh, VPN, you had to buy <laughs> a client VPN product. Then it it got it got built into what eventually we called EPP, endpoint uh, prevention protection platforms, something like that. So, um, yeah, and, and cloud, you know, I think is is really where cloud and data, you know, I think is is where we're we're just going to see a lot of fragmentation and consolidation all happening at the same time. Yeah, the biggest challenge that, that we've been seeing is certainly around the management story of devices, whether they're joined to on-prem or they're joined to cloud and how to do that management across those different systems. So I think that's a big area of opportunity and certainly the the vendors that are able to capture that as well as have a good security story are going to be successful. And yeah, so so I mean, I mean, one of the biggest ones... Um, you know the 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 most shocking. I've already forgotten the name of the private equity firm. Um, I, I had never heard about it before this, but the same private equity firm acquired FireEye, RSA, um, um, McAfee. You know, like like they owned like more than half of all the old school uh, giant security companies, big security right. platform companies. And just carved them all up and spun them out. And uh, we're starting to see that now. It looks like with Tomo Bravo picking up uh, Ping and SailPoint in, in the same year. And aren't they? The, they're also the ones who picked up Forge Rock. So they wow. just yeah. picked up. SailPoint and Ping are pretty big. I mean, we, we see a number of customers using SailPoint for identity management. And then, of course, Ping for federation and, and identity. The, the comp- for sorry, sale point for management of uh, cloud systems across cloud systems, and then ping is managing the identity and and handling the federation. So that that's a good play there. And then Forge Rock, right? And, and yeah. Forge Rock is that's more B two B to C. So like when you log into like Bank of America, um, I, I think they have the top nine banks or something like that as as customers. So. You know, if you log into any large U.S. bank, you're logging in through Fordrock, I think. Yeah. So sounds right. Yeah, it, each of them uh, multi-billion-dollar purchases: two point eight billion for Ping, six point nine for SailPoint, and uh, two point three for Fordrock. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, it's crazy to see so many identity management vendors all under one PE, but uh, I guess no less crazy than RSA, FireEye, and McAfee all going to the same same PE. Right. Uh, let's see here. Um, <clears throat> what's next? Um, yeah, so might as well mention this next here. 
So I, I, I wrote up my experiences. I went to Brazil for the first time. And what I was interested in, you know, because my, my company put on kind of like a, a one-day invite-only CISO event. And so all the CISOs are just talking about their challenges, their experiences, and stuff like that. And um, I was really interested to see it because uh, I haven't traveled a whole lot internationally outside uh, Europe. Uh, I, I did go to Colombia, so I got kind of that uh, – that feeling from from South America on where people are at, and that that was for a security conference. But um, you know, certainly when I went to the Middle East ten years ago, you know, they they were way behind uh, in terms of uh, uh, tech and security maturity, and which is one of the reasons they they were bringing in folks from the outside. You know, that you could make a lot of money if you're willing to move to the Middle East and help them fix their security issues. Sure, but. Uh, but yeah, going to Brazil, going to Sao Paulo, um, you know, it was identical to the conversations that I'm hearing here. So it was interesting seeing that, you know, they're, they're no further behind than anybody here in the U.S. from from what I could tell from the, the conversations happening. Um, <clears throat> and Sao Paulo is like like a huge uh, t- ton of startups there, a um, lot of tech there, a lot of banking uh, there, finance uh, they have a lot of uh, neo banks in in Brazil, so I found it found it just uh, really interesting to get that perspective. I don't often get non U.S. perspective on uh, on how things are going. I get a little bit from Australia from listening to Risky Business to to that podcast, but otherwise I've got some gaps in my 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 knowledge and perception of you know how security is going in other parts of the world. It's definitely interesting for sure. I mean. Uh, while we all kind of deal with the same sort of challenges and issues uh, and attack profiles, but there's there's definitely differences in size of businesses. Talking with folks over in Australia, talking with folks in Europe about different ages of of uh, company sizes, uh, ages of companies as well as their size, how they're distributed, uh, how they manage these these challenges. It's 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 always fascinating for me. Yeah. Oops. Close my news window by mistake. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. What else? Um, I want to hear about this ghostwriting of tweets. Yeah, yes. I couldn't get into that. So I don't have a subscription. So you'll have to. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, I think I actually do have a subscription. Uh, I should have uh, grabbed a copy of that and, and sent it over to you guys. But um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of. Um, you know, th- th- this has been all over social people saying, you know, I, I know you can probably make a lot of money, uh, doing that, but that much, you know, so a lot of people are very skeptical about this, about the, uh, the truth to it. But, um, uh, some of the people who actually pay for these things, like, like there's been enough feedback at this point that, uh, yeah, I, I think this is, this is pretty legit. You know, like uh, a lot of folks want really good Twitter game, you know, and they're willing to pay somebody else to uh, to help them, you know, get to a certain level. And it's not like um, people are logging in directly to their accounts to do it. You know, it's more like I'll draft you a bunch of tweets and you choose which ones you use, which ones you don't, you know. So it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, more, more like ghostwriting. In, in that in that case, where you you do get some editorial control over what you send, it's not somebody just logging into your 
uh, Twitter and and uh, pretending to be you. Sure, you can you can even have federated access. I know when I've worked at a few companies, they've wanted the executives have wanted the marketing team or the social media team to to create and actually post mm-hmm. the tweets and and so you can obviously have accounts you pay for it but you have different logins to those and yeah. you can use services that will you know like the buffers and uh, yeah alley and buffer the world yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, they have a whole editorial workflow built into them, right? Like you can just have yeah. somebody who can only create draft tweets, you know, and then you can approve or decline them, you know, which moves them into scheduling and Buffer automatically does the scheduling for you. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting to hear that. Like, I can't imagine that being my whole job, though. Like, <laughs> so what do you do for a living? Nice Ferrari, what do you do? <laughs> I have write tweets for rich people. <laughs> I mean, hey, if if you can come up with compliance that doesn't sock, you know, yeah. fun little yeah. sayings and 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 doesn't sock too much. The equivalent of a jingle is for a company. You yeah. get paid to be creative. Why? Why not? I mean, it's you know, really I small mean, things. You're creating really, really small things. But I mean, if, if you're even a month off your game, like, like that could be the difference between a tweet going viral because of a funny meme and, and just complete cringe fest, you know, like, like, so somebody doing this, they, they really do have to kind of keep up with the trends and what's popular. And, uh, you know, if the goal is, is for the tweet to, uh, to do really well in terms of, uh, 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 what's the metric? Um, number of times it's seen. Help me out here, Katie. What, what's that metric? I don't know. It- <laughs> but it, there's a there's a magic number of a of- impressions. Thank you, thank you, impressions. Oh, I had no idea where you were going with that. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Gus. <laughs> yeah, no, it was the uh, yeah. I mean, because because that's how you that's part of the contract, right? Like you you hire. PR firm or something like that, you know, you want to guarantee of like a certain number of mentions or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so far from that. I'm like, woohoo, one person read something I wrote. So, you know, yeah. you know mega impressions and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got a must read here. Um, this uh, with technology, there's no such thing as magic. Um it's 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 uh, for for me it's it's nothing really new but what's interesting about it you know it's it's kind of taking this idea um, you know of how companies market themselves and uh, you know how innovation occurs and things like that and um, you know Keith here who uh, is actually the um, <clears throat> Uh, Keith Hoodlett was one of the original founders of the Application Security Weekly podcast. Him and Paul started that, and I think he was there for like the first 50 or so uh, episodes of Application Security Weekly. Uh, his background is actually in, uh, let me look it up real quick here, Some, something about behavioral science. You know, So this is all about biases, about different biases and how to spot them uh, you know, when, when looking at the market. <clears throat> 
So really interesting read, and he breaks it up. Uh, the way he breaks it up is 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 really nice, and uh, kind of builds on some of the work that Haroon Mir and uh, I did in the keynote called "The Products uh, We Deserve," where we go into you know how the analyst industry works, how companies get seen, you know how they how they um, um, kind of impre- increase their presence in the market. So really interesting read there if you want to understand kind of the, the vendor side of things, you know, how how the whole marketing side of, of uh, vendor stuff works. And, and it's kind of funny because it's a lot of it's kind of uh, attacking the approaches there. But at the same time, you could use this post but like this is just straight up success. Like if you just treat this whole post as instructional and you're in marketing for a vendor, it's going to work. Like the process clearly works, <laughs> and it has been working for a while. So you could you could treat the whole thing as as uh, just uh, instructive for for anybody building a marketing program for a uh, for a startup. All right, uh, I think I'm gonna jump to. Is there anything I missed here that I wanted to talk about? I don't think so. Um, yeah, so squirrel story. Let's hit the squirrel story here. Oh, I'm again embarrassed from Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, other shows have uh, even have segments just for Florida man. Now Massachusetts woman gets to gets to you know put her. This stamp. is like the second or third time there was the turkey thing a few weeks ago. Yeah. 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 The attack turkeys. Flo- Florida man has competition. <laughs> so, with, so for the with for Massachusetts those woman and her bees, those poor bees. All right. Do, do you want to give kind of the? Were, were you already familiar with this story, Katie? I actually did see it. Yeah, I saw it before you you posted the stories today. So yeah. apparently, what happened earlier this month is some woman was threatened with eviction. And the deputies were were deployed to her house. And as soon as they tried to get in touch with her and tried to get her to come out of the house, she released a swarm of bees. Uh, she had a hive and she let the bees out and they swarmed the deputies. And uh, yeah. <laughs> a bunch of people got stung too. Yeah, a bunch of people got stung. She was wearing protective gear. Um, They had absolutely no warning that they were going to be swarmed and stung by bees. And, you know, if somebody's allergic, they could die. That was a point made in this little news release here. Um, And she used bees to try to not be evicted from her house. So... yeah, so slight, corre- slight correction there. It wasn't her house. It was somebody else getting. I'm evicted. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're and, right. And she right. she, she right. showed up to she showed up to protest it. So apparently this is a pretty common thing, is people showing up to protest some somebody getting evicted. With uh, bees. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I didn't realize that this is a common thing that like like people if somebody's being evicted like the word goes out over Facebook or wherever they're coordinating. And they'll they'll show up and like try and block the eviction from happening, and 
she just happened to have a, a ton of bees and she was like yeah, yeah you know she brought you know, a hive of uh, bees to this house yeah yeah the uh that that was her hammer that was the tool she had at her disposal were bees and, uh, even if you're not allergic to bees there are a lot of people who are scared stiff of bees yeah yeah so it's uh, a swarm of bees is generally pretty terrifying especially when they're angry which is what she 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 made them angry on purpose well she was charged with assault and battery by means of a dangerous weapon assault by means of a dangerous weapon assault by means of a dangerous weapon and disorderly conduct yeah four counts so, and, and and the deadly weapon was bees to be clear <laughs> I don't know what kind of charge that holds, but I could also see animal cruelty yeah. coming in there. I'm sure some humane society people might make that case too. You can't use a live, well, you can, people do use live animals as attack mechanisms all the time, but it's not, it's not right. I think yeah. once you unleash an animal uh, or a creature against another, knowing that they could cause some harm, uh, potentially serious harm with bee allergies, then yeah, there, there's definitely going to be some charges around that. Yeah, especially if you if you don't have a any claim of self defense, which clearly she didn't. She just rolled up on these cops, you know, serving this uh, eviction. You know, just, and at least you know, in the picture, she's wearing protective gear. Yeah. She just rolled up on these cops and just unleashed the bees. Like, so like she, smashing. she knew that there was yeah. potential for some serious damage. Oh yeah. Like, like there was a quote. I, I don't, I don't know if it's on this one, but somebody mentioned they were allergic and she was like, Oh, you're allergic. Good. <laughs> oh, Florida man know, and Massachusetts woman are one of a kind. Well, they can't be one of a kind. That was a stupid thing to say. Never mind. Apparently, it's late. I need to go to sleep. Yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, yeah, peas in a pod or something like that might work a little bit better there. Or bees know. in a pod. Uh, bees in a hive. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah, weird stuff. Yeah, pe <laughs> On people. that note, but I'm bum. <laughs> Some weird uh, wild stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people, people just, people need to chill out, man. Need to chill out. All right. Um, so that's all we've got for you today. Um, you know, if you stayed for the bees article, thank you. Uh, if you enjoyed uh, any of what you heard today, uh, you can you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Anywhere else that will take uh, podcast reviews, we would appreciate that. Or if you just have a uh, comment, anything like that, you can hit us up on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can email us or um, hit us up on uh, LinkedIn as well. So uh, thanks so much, um, uh, Sean and, and Katie, for joining me today. My, my script is all messed up. It says Tyler and Katie. I, I had to really uh, kind of adjust on the fly today. But uh, thanks to both of you. It's that kind of for, day. That kind yeah. of day. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate you guys helping out today. And a big thanks to everyone watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. We will be back next week, and Matt Alderman will be sitting in for me next week. I'll actually be on vacation early next week, and but later in the week, I am delivering the keynote at LASCON in Austin, Texas. So if you are in Austin, Texas, and you're going to LASCON, please say hello. 
and uh, love to uh, meet anybody who listens to the podcast uh, in real life. But um, I'll see you uh, two weeks from now. <laughs>